This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gap Fest for July 5th, 2018, the Abolish Ice edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I'm in Washington, D.C., John Dickerson is absent today, probably on vacation, would be my guess. I saw an Instagram of him out uh, trap shooting or skeet shooting with his kids, so that suggests he's on vacation, since that doesn't sound like work. But sitting in for John, we have Jacob Weisberg, host of Trumpcast, chairman of the Slate Group. Hello, Jacob in New York. Hello, David. And with Jacob is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Howdy, Emily. Hello, hello. Also, in this, you guys are cuddled up nice and close in the studio. You look, <laughs> and you're both wearing it's a little hot. It's a little hot here in New York. It's, but the studio is perfectly pleasant. You're both wearing white. It's very summery. I feel like I'm in a garden party and I'm underdressed. It's true. You are. But we love you anyway. Uh, I'm just, yeah, because I'm in some ratty Star Wars t-shirt. On this week's GabFest, President Trump is really, really enjoying his open tryouts for Supreme Court justice. Is he going to choose Amy Coney Barrett? Is he going to choose Brett Kavanaugh? Is he going to surprise us with a dark horse candidate? Then the new progressive rallying cry is abolish ICE. Is that a winning policy? Is that a winning political strategy? And then Scott Pruitt, who is involved in so many, so many ethics investigations, is finally out. The EPA administrator resigned on Thursday afternoon. We will talk about how he survived for so long and what comes next. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And don't forget, GabFest listeners, we have a live show coming up in Philadelphia in just two weeks, July 18th, on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, PA, just outside Philadelphia. We have a live GabFest. Emily, John, and I are going to be there. It's going to be super fun. It's obviously going to be right in the heart of the um, the summit that President Trump is having and the Supreme Court nomination will be out. There's going to be a lot to discuss. So join us there. Go to slate.com slash live to pick up a ticket to our show at the Keswick Theater on July 18th. Emily, how many of your family members are actually going to be there? Have you figured that out? Every single person related to me or who's ever heard of me. No, uh, I'm not sure how many, but, <laughs> but my, my parents will definitely be there. Really? Are they? Yeah. Are you going to give them a cameo? Are they going to get to do a cocktail chatter? I don't. I don't know if that's necessary. No. All right. <laughs> what if they have their hands up to ask questions afterwards? That would be funny. That could happen. That could totally happen. I'm sure, and the, it'll be some stumper question. The the crowd is des- definitely going to want to meet some Bazelon relatives. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Emily's like, whatever. No. <laughs> David, not. I remember your your son was at a live gab fest a couple of years ago. I was at, and you called on him first, which I thought was definitely the right move. And he had a great question. Oh, yeah, he did. That's right. He did have a yeah. question. Huh. Jacob. That's Other Jacob. Yes, all Jacobs. Um, my, my, my namesake. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like to publicize that, Jake. <laughs> all right. Let's start. President Trump, who loves nothing more than a public audition, has spent much of the last week very 
publicly contemplating whom to nominate to succeed Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Trump has been working off a list of, I think, 25 names, largely compiled by the Federalist Society, which has become... Entirely compiled by the Federalist Society, compiled. I believe. That has become for Republican judge picking what Consumer Reports has become for liberal car buying. <laughs> and he's... Wire cutter. Yeah, with the wire cutter of... Uh, his, don't log roll for Emily's, Emily's company there. Uh, there. There were seven people that he has interviewed, either by phone or in person. There are two or three people who seem to have risen to the top of the list. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who's an appeals court judge in D.C., Amy Coney Barrett, who's a newly appointed appeals court judge on the Seventh Circuit, and then uh, Kethridge, right, Emily? Kethridge, I think his name is. Yes. Um, Kavanaugh and Barrett, who seem to be the, I would say, the front runners, are both very young. Kavanaugh's in his early 50s, Barrett's in her mid-40s. Uh, I used to play. She's been on the court much longer than she has, though. She's yeah. only been on uh, an appellate court for like eight months, I think. You used to play. Yes, I used to play basketball with Brett Kavanaugh in the late Aww. 90s. He has an excellent jump shot. Uh, a very nice guy on the basketball court. Don't know what he's like on any other court. Um, but Emily, why are those two folks in particular at the top of the list? Well, I can't tell if they're really at the top of the list or just if they provide all of us with a useful way of thinking about the different the slightly different profile. So Amy Coney Barrett is a recent appointee of the court. Interestingly, she's not the, from an Ivy League background. She's not from Harvard or Yale, which that would be a big refreshing addition to the court. She um, is deeply religious. She's gotten attention for this particular Catholic group she's in, which uses terms like um, head of household for men and handmaid. I think they stopped, but they... They Until recently. Also, I don't think it's Catholic. It's, I don't it's think it's not. Catholic. I think it's, it's, like, it's charismatic Catholic. Christian right. community, which is mostly right. Catholic. But you're right. It's an... Which actually, when you read about, sounds kind it of does sounded sound like kind of a lovely. sounded like a kibbutz. Yeah, except that I think they're super into men being deferred to in lots of ways in the head of household way, which made me slightly nervous. I've been watching too much of The Handmaid's Tale, so anything that smacks of that right now gets me agitated unnecessarily, so perhaps. In any case... Um, Barrett had this well-publicized exchange with Senator Dianne Feinstein at her appellate court um, confirmation hearings in which Feinstein was going after her over an essay she wrote in which Barrett said she thought that some Catholic judges like uh, Justice Brennan, who was on the court previously, should recuse themselves from some death penalty cases because of their Catholic beliefs. And so this became fodder for Feinstein saying to her, your, your dogma lives loudly within you, a really unfortunate phrase. And I think it was all just like a very clumsy handling of this question of um, how one's ideological or religious beliefs should inform one's judging. Um, you know, Barrett's like the choice of the religious conservatives because she seems perfectly positioned to be, you know, totally determined to go after Roe versus Wade and other precedents. And then Brett Kavanaugh is the guy who was on Ken Starr's prosecutorial team. In the Clinton era, he has more of an established record about deferring to executive authority. Um, and I think he would also be an anti-abortion vote strongly and that these are basically manufactured differences for the most part. I mean, I guess there's someone, something slightly interesting about whether Trump is really going to pick another white man um, or will go with a woman or there's one Indian American on the list um, recently appointed to the Sixth Circuit, Amal Thapar. So I guess there's 
a, a slightly interesting question about race and gender and whether Trump really wants to appoint another white man like Neil Gorsuch. But um, I don't know this. I find this stage of the process to be um, always kind of tedious because it's one thing to go through the records of the appellate court judge or whoever it is after you know who that person is and another to go through like three or six or nine or 12 of them and try to, you know, parse out the slight differences. One point to note about Kavanaugh, which I found shocking upon <laughs> discovering it, is that Kavanaugh is 53 years old, uh, grew up in suburban Washington. Neil Gorsuch, I think, is 52 years old, grew up in suburban Washington. They went to the same very small Catholic prep school, Georgetown That's Prep. That's crazy. Uh, and they're both sort of, you know, nice looking white guys from very prosperous upper middle class, upper class backgrounds in suburban Washington. That is a that is a prep school notable, I would say, for having a golf course <laughs> on campus, which is unusual even by prep school standards. Right. So um, there's actually something sort of interesting about that, which is that this is a narrow world that the Federalist Society has drawn from. I mean, this makes Amy Conant Barrett's, you know, Notre Dame Rose College resume stand out. But again, in terms of what these people are actually going to be like on the court, that's a different question. And in terms of being reliable hardline conservative fifth votes, I think everybody Trump is considering appears to fit into that framework. So Jacob Barrett uh, has the, you know, as as Emily says, has this uh, non-Ivy League background. She has seven children, including two adopted from Haiti. She's very uh, religious and 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 eloquent about it. Uh, why on earth wouldn't Trump pick her? She seems like a no-brainer, given all the, unless there's something we're missing. Well, she, she kind of does seem like a no-brainer, but I think we're t- getting too quickly into the hair splitting about the nominees and the close reading of their law review articles and who would do what. I think there's a more primary issue here, which I wish the Democrats would go back to, which is they owe us a seat. They stole a seat from Merrick Garland when they wrongly blocked a nomination by Barack Obama. And Democrats should have fought a retaliatory fight on Gorsuch, but they didn't, and they should do it now with this nominee. And they will lose that fight almost certainly, but I think they will benefit from making the fight. I think they'll benefit from it in several ways. One, I think it's, I think it's valid and there's a strong argument and it's just an eye for an eye. They took one of ours. We're going to take one of theirs until we're, until the score is even. Two, I think it's going to, it's something that's going to energize the base. And I don't think the conventional way of fighting, which is to try to find chinks in the armor of the nominee, you know, either a Bork strategy where you try to find personal stuff or you simply try to argue conventionally that the nominee is too extreme and outside the mainstream and wrote this one law review article or gave this one interview where they said something that sounds dodgy. I mean, all of that is really pretext for what Democrats mean, which is we don't think there should be another conservative Republican on the bench. And in particular, that Donald Trump doesn't deserve to nominate one. And there is a chance they can they can at least block someone till after the election, right? I mean, they're they're only one vote down in the Senate. I think there are a couple of Republicans who are vulnerable from Democratic challenge, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski in particular, who are amenable to persuasion. John McCain may not vote. Um, it's not impossible that they can block a nominee. I think you're right for a couple of reasons. One is the 
extreme sophistication and skill of the vetting process by the Federalist Society. So the days of like, oh, David Souter, what a surprise. He betrayed his core conservative constituency. Those days are over. And so the chinks in the armor are likely to be relatively few and not all that compelling. I mean, that was what happened with Neil Gorsuch from the point of view of the Democrats. And so I think you're right that it is the overarching argument. I am skeptical about how receptive Collins and Murkowski will be to that argument. I mean, listening to Collins in the last week, you know, if you really want her to be a champion for anything other than confirming Trump's nominee, you would want her to be saying stuff she's not saying now. I mean, this is a person who's voted for every single Trump lower court nominee. And she said last week that she thinks John Roberts wouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade, which made me think all she cared about was like the technical question of whether it was actually overturned. and had no interest in whether it's gutted because Roberts voted for the um, in the dissent a few years ago in the case out of Texas with all of Texas's regulations that would have effectively um, ended or close to ended access to abortion in a whole bunch of states anyway. But I think you're right that the Democrats need to um, rally for their own political sake, as well as the substance that's at issue here and, you know, and put Collins and Murkowski's feet to the fire. Yeah, I mean, use any argument at hand. I mean, just definitely use use Roe with with Collins and Murkowski. It's going to it's what's going to sway them. They're not going to be swayed by the argument that Republicans shouldn't get to pick the next uh, Supreme Court justice until after after the election, at least. Um, but I just think uh, what I mean is that they should have a hammer and tongs all out fight in which their unified position is we will not support Trump's nominee. And they can say that nominee is a very nice person. Qualified, that's not the issue. But so, Jacob, game out how that actually works as a practical strategy. I understand the rhetorical desire. In fact, the Democrats do not control the Senate. They there's now essentially majority vote in the Senate, so they are unable to filibuster. Their their capacity to resist is simply to delay by refusing unanimous consent uh, for Senate action, which is I suppose they can do, and to make hearings last as long as they can make them last. But they have no capacity to stop a vote. No, but they they could could possibly win a vote, right? I mean, if John McCain doesn't vote and if they pick up two Republican votes and lose no Democratic votes, they win the vote. I mean, yeah. this is the argument but, against Amy Coney Well, but that's a, that's that's uh, that's doing it on the substance. That's not doing it on the reason you cite, which is on the Trump does not deserve to get a vote. No, I'm not because saying. Well, all right, but if you want to be if you, if you want to make an exact parallel, you have to prevent the vote. I don't think you can do that, but I think you can vote no on the basis that Merrick Garland didn't get a vote. Right. Okay. But that but that's different from saying we're actually going to. Stop well, I guess what I don't know is do you reject, stop reject the, the argument? Should, reject the, but should they try to reject the nominee quickly or try to reject the nominee slowly? Is it better for this to last past the election and be it be something that galvanizes Republicans to vote or for them to lose, have a new conservative justice on the Supreme Court by Election Day and use that to get Democrats out to vote and, and do what they really need to do, which is win back part of I Congress. think they should try to win. I think there is a chance that they could defeat a nominee. I think they should try to do that and they should make it as long and as painful as possible. Including withholding unanimous consent, which would like end all the Senate business. I mean, that's the sort of nuclear. Well, I hate using that term because we use it for other things. But like that seems to be the only real structural power they have. But 
I don't know. We were talking about this a little last week, and John thought that that was like a bridge too far. I'm all in favor of that. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what gets held up when, but what's more important than this? You know, I mean, this is so it's going to hold up the budget for Homeland Security for another month. I think they can deal with that. You know, I think they've got to. This is the kind of tactic that Republicans have been so willing to use. And the Democrats have always defaulted to to put their public responsibility on. And I think if there's ever a time to make a stand, this is it. To me, the long term goal of congressional Democrats is to regain a congressional majority. If they recognize they don't have the votes to stop a Trump nominee, should they try to lose quickly or should they try to lose slowly? I'm You're not, not sure. hearing me. I think they shouldn't try to lose at all. I mean, I think they're I think they're likely to lose. I think that's a that's a valid prediction, but I don't think it's certain they're going to lose. I think there is a chance that with people in the streets, with a, with the with the base energized, with people as upset and angry about what's happening as they should be, that they can defeat Trump's first nominee and at least push the issue until after the election. So do do you Emily have a sense about whether there are gettable Republican votes. I'm I'm pretty pessimistic because this is the like this is Trump's best play. It's the thing he's done the most successfully and smoothly in his presidency. And I think the pressure from the Republican base to have this victory is going to be huge. And I have yet to see Susan Collins like really a single time in the Trump presidency actually stand up to Republicans and block something from happening. She gets a lot of mileage out of gesturing in that direction and claiming bipartisanship. But in terms of actually doing it, she talked about trying to come to some deal to save parts of Obamacare. And in the end, she voted against the Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act. Like she has voted for all these lower court nominees. She voted for Neil Gorsuch. I just but that isn't to say that, you know, the Democrats shouldn't pressure her or that she couldn't lose her next election over this. I mean, if you are a pro-choice person in Maine and Susan Collins votes for the person who effectively, you know, takes away access to abortion for much of the country, like that is a broken promise. I mean, she holds the right to legal abortion in her hands. Yeah. And those stakes should be made clear to everyone right and she she in the, the end of the day she will make whatever choice she makes about that but she shouldn't be allowed to slip out of the the noose by saying oh the judge assured me that he that he or she believes in precedent right and what we seem to be heading toward is her trying to head off a nominee like amy coney barrett who's going to make her make her collins look bad and hypocritical from the start. But someone like Brett Kavanaugh is, in my view, just as likely to do the work of gutting Roe. And so, you know, the fact that he's not quite on the record in such a clear way should not be the thing that makes the difference, even though she's going to claim that it is. I mean, that just shows you that Brett Kavanaugh has been thinking about being on the Supreme Court for the past 30 years. And he's not even all that clean. I mean, the D.C. Circuit just had this case or cases of, you know, undocumented immigrants in the custody of um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And there were a couple underage girls, at least a couple, who wanted to have abortions. And the the Trump administration was refusing to facilitate their access to doctors. There was a lawsuit. And Kavanaugh said that he didn't think that these girls should get these abortions. He just didn't go quite as far as one of his colleagues who also decided to, you know, rattle her saber about how Roe was unconstitutional. But Like, as you said, Jacob, that was a smart strategy on his part and also sort of pointless to go on about that in a moment where, like, Roe still is the law. 
if you took Emily nine relatively intelligent lawyers from around the country, even nine that had just gone to Harvard and Yale Law School as the Supreme Court, and you briefed all the Supreme Court cases that the Supreme Court has, would they sort themselves ideologically the way that the justices sort themselves? Would there in fact be, if you just took any random sampling of lawyers, would you end up with a conservative block and a liberal block that voted consistently together across most of the critical cases? Or would that not happen? Is it that we, is it that the, that there really are two species in lawyers generally, or it's just that the ones who end up going to the Supreme Court are have to be in one of these two species. Well, so remember that most of the cases that go to the Supreme Court do not divide five to four conservatives to liberals, right? I mean, there are a lot of cases, like thousands of federal cases in the country and even dozens in front of the Supreme Court where there is an answer that often comes from, you know, the text of a statute or precedent, you know, meaning prior case law, that's like pretty obvious and they mostly agree on it. It is true. Right. So that goes nine zero or like a whatever people slightly. But it doesn't divide in this ideological way. The problem are two sets of cases. One set are cases in which there is just no clear legal answer, like the right to abortion. It is not written in the Constitution that we have that right. So you have to buy into some interpretation of either the right to privacy, which is what Roe is based on, or equal rights for women, which is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg wishes and I wish that Roe were based on, right? There are these capacious phrases in the Constitution. Due process, equal rights, they can mean a lot of things or they can mean very little. Um, And then the second area of cases that have tended to divide this way, and this is perhaps more troubling, are cases in which there is just a statute at issue, and yet we see this ideological division, which does seem more suspect. So this term, the Ohio case about what Ohio can do to purge its voting rules, that was based on these two laws. It was about how the motor voter law lined up against um, the subsequent law that um, Congress passed to regulate elections. I tried for a while to look at those provisions and decide how they went together or didn't go together. It was really hard. I couldn't come up with like, absolutely, this is the slam dunk answer. And so what the law professors on both sides who were like following along were doing was arguing, well, which side gets the presumption? Should you should you basically like defer to the notion that, you know, kicking people off the rolls with a process that starts just with them not voting seems out of the spirit? Or do you, you know, say, no, I don't care about that and just like look at the statutes and say, well, there's no clear answer. So Ohio can do what it wants. And that's where you see people put a more partisan political thumb on the scale. And indeed, that case came down five to four conservatives versus liberals in favor of Ohio's voter purge. No constitutional principle at stake, just statutory interpretation. That didn't really answer my question. No, it did. It did. (laughs) It did. Well, then let me take another stab at it, which is to say that increasingly we see a court that behaves ideologically in cases of just like reading the text of laws in addition to filling in effectively like the blanks in the Constitution. But would every Republican who is appointed to every Republican appointed to my shadow Supreme Court end up voting for Ohio? Yeah, I think they would because they would have a choice, right? You can ma- If you can make a plausible argument in two directions, then 
it seems increasingly, and or maybe the increasingly is not quite right. Some con law scholar can argue with me. But we are certainly seeing evidence right now where if there are two plausible interpretations, the Republican appointees, the conservatives pick the one that favors their result and the Democrats pick the one that favors their result. And so, yeah, I think that any of your lawyers who got appointed, unless they had some really well-developed theory of like judicial modesty or something that got them out of making these decisions would be making similar calls. So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, and uh, you should become a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And Jacob, how much does Slate Plus membership cost these days? For the first year, David, it's only $35. Whoa, what a bargain. So for $35, you can get a bonus segment on the GapFest every week on other Slate podcasts. And this week's bonus segment is a really juicy one. Is it mean for liberal Northeasterners to shun Alan Dershowitz on Martha's Vineyard? This is a problem I know that so many of us face. <laughs> and uh, we're going we're gonna to answer your, that. Your beach problems, question. summer beach problem solved. So go to slate.com slash GapFest plus to get your membership today. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Abolish ICE is a new rallying cry on the left, pushed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in her insurgent campaign, adopted by Kristen Gillibrand, a couple of other sitting Democratic legislators. It has become both a slogan and a great divide for Democrats. On the farther progressive left, there are those who would eliminate immigration customs enforcement and reset how we handle those migrants living among us who don't have a legal right to be here, uh, who would make ICE less paramilitary, less vicious. On the less progressive left, but still the left, there are those who would merely reform ICE by basically doing the same things, but by not eliminating the organization, I suppose. So Jacob, where did abolish ICE come from and is it a good idea from a policy perspective? And is it a good slogan from a slogan perspective? It's I think it's a terrible slogan and a very flawed idea. I think it's a terrible slogan because Democrats are the party that upholds public service and government agencies. And it seems to me that, you know, we don't want to get into the conservative game of saying whole swaths of the government are unnecessary or do something or malicious in some way. I think ICE badly needs to be reformed 
as does the CPB, which actually guards the border in the division of labor from what used to be the old INS, the Immigration and Nationalization Service. But fundamentally, this is an issue of policy. The left's problem is with Donald Trump's policy of deportations, of separating families, of everything he's doing around immigration. It should not be with the individuals who serve the government in any capacity, including law enforcement. And I just think that's a, I think that's a mugs game for the Democrats. Um, I do think on the just a bit on the other side of it that what the, the positive phenomenon here is the energy and ideas coming from the left of the party. The Democratic Party, I, I think now, is, is increasingly coming to resemble the Republican Party in the early 80s, in, in the Reagan years. Lots of those ideas seemed extreme, excessive, uh, sort of beyond the pale of, of the political discussion. And lo and point. behold. Yeah. And, you know, but they drove the party and a lot of them were bad ideas. Um, but they captured the party because they captured people's imaginations and they were what got people excited about being on that side. You know, the sort of abolished ICE is, is typifies in a way the same phenomenon on the liberal side. And the phenomenon is good. I mean, the Democrats need that energy. They need uh, those ideas. I think they just don't need this particular framing. Well, but in the Overton window theory of, of policymaking, is it good to have this extreme and, in your view, bad idea out there so that it makes it more likely you get the less extreme and better version of it, a reform ice? Or should they not even raise it because it is in itself so bad that what if they catch that they catch that postal truck? What if they're the dog that doesn't <laughs> catch that postal truck and they do have to abolish ice? They, should, they just need a different slogan. You know, fix uh, abolish ice sounds like you don't believe in any immigration enforcement, which certainly hasn't been democratic policy and isn't democratic policy. There are very few Demo elected Democrats who would support the idea that there should be no uh, version of ICE, that there should be no uh, deportations at all, that there should be no immigration enforcement. And again, it's just it's the Democrats attacking part of part of the government. I don't think they should be doing that. I think they should have a slogan that moves the debate, that moves the argument. But I don't think they want to move it in that way. I take your point about the abolish part, but on the other hand, I never thought the Department of Homeland Security was a good idea. Like the history of this is after 9-11, it looked like our, and it was true that our borders were frighteningly porous and, you know, everybody got together on a bipartisan basis and created this new agency. And it's always been kind of an alarming power center. And the fact that ICE is its own Thing, which is doing mostly picking people up or, you know, dealing with detention and deportation within the country, but also gets mixed up in the border patrols with CPB, has insulated ICE from a lot of the kinds of reforms that we want. I'm not actually sure that this governmental structure that was created in 2003 is serving the country's interests well. And it was, of course, created to prevent, you know, terrorists from coming in and now it's like mostly this weapon that we used against we use against people from Latin America. So there's like a morphing of the mission that's been problematic too. So for that reason I wonder if it really is such a problem for progressives to be complaining about a part of the government. I mean, you know it was a really shitty agency before DHS, INS. I mean, it right, was Right, but it wasn't this shitty, was it? Or wasn't this like I was going to use the word weaponized. ICE wasn't, the, sh ICE wasn't the shitty under Obama either. There's, did it you was pretty bad, that? but not as bad. But did you read that interview with Cecilia Munoz, yes. who who 
supervised it under Obama. And it was, you know, it, it had different directives. It was less paramilitary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Criminals. It, though, exactly, say. David. Though, well, the issue is law- that's it, that's their job is to hate that immigration lawyers. The issue is policy. It's not it's not the the agency per se, and it's certainly not the people who work for the agency. They will follow the policy set at the top. What they're being told right now is to be arbitrary, aggressive, brutal, unfair. Um, and now the we're, it's it's like it's like attacking the police for enforcing laws you don't like. Um, the police, you know, the police will follow the policy that's set. Well, you, wait a second, though, because police unions, and this has been true also of the organization that represents a lot of ICE agents, are also lobbyists who take political positions and affect the debate. And the ICE, like, representative organization was a big Trump backer. And that mattered. I mean, I can't remember the name of the head of it who was on TV a lot, but he was out there backing Trump. And so, yes, it is true. I mean, I'm against attacking individual people who work for the government, including law enforcement. But I also think we have to recognize the way in which these groups of government actors are not simply doing their jobs. They're also a political force. Well, that's true. Do- that's true. And it's, you know, I think you could say the same thing about the the firemen and the and the police and the emergency workers in, in New York, you know, who were the backbone of Giuliani's support. I mean, it's not that these people don't have political views and uh, and don't and don't represent them, but they they perform a function that we are generally uncomfortable with. I mean, even when it was the INS. You know, it was not this was never a beloved agency of of government. They were sort of in a way saved by their incompetence and bureaucracy. You know, they weren't good. They weren't good at deporting people, but they weren't very good at at helping people with their legitimate immigration problems either. And, you know, I'd rather go back to the kind of INS pre DHS model where you have something that is that is more oriented towards helping people come to the country and become citizens legitimately. That it is focused on the random enforcement of, of uh, deportations. To, so, Jacob, going back to your original framing of this, um, one thing that conservatives had enormous amount of success with over the years is the abolish the IRS idea, which is like an insane idea, which most Republicans don't sign on to. to. They still want taxes collected in some way, and most people want taxes to be collected relatively fairly. But as an emotional pull on people, it was very effective uh, a certain, on a certain class of conservative ideologues who would then get out and vote. Why isn't the same argument true here for abolish ICE, setting aside your point like the Democrats should support government and government institutions working well? But those attacks on the IRS were absolutely disgusting. I mean, these people who worked for, they were, forever the IRS, they, are, were dis- they were they were totally disgusting. But they were they useful. not politically effective for Republicans? Well, I mean, I think I think as a motivator. I think they probably were. You know, in these show trials, these hearings they had with you know IRS agents supposedly testifying anonymously behind curtains. I mean, they created you know all of this theater around the idea that what the IRS did was fundamentally unfair. When what the IRS does is fundamentally necessary and good to any civilized society. I mean, Agreed. I just don't see how you you can say, well, that's that worked, so it's something you want to copy. It may have worked. Lots of lots of forms of demagoguery work. I think demagoguing against 
the patriots who work for the federal government is not a form of demagoguery that Democrats want to touch. I'm not saying they shouldn't try to be political and populist and figure out how to frame issues. But if if they start picking off the parts of the government they don't like and attacking them, I think, you know, you're just going to create this this pitched battle that is going to be, be even now at an acceleration or an escalation of the kind of political fighting we're having. I mean, essentially, we're having a similar conversation to the one we were talking about before and the overarching theme of what does it mean to fight and what are you fight like? How, and I think the left is generally full of this conversation right now. How far do you go? Is, uh, you know, exaggerated rhetoric perfectly fine as long as it presents a tactical advantage because all you're doing is expanding the Overton window. You don't really mean abolish ICE. So who cares? Or as you're arguing, do you create this like really corrosive set of um, rhetorical points you're making that, you know, erode the quality of the democracy and the government in this way that has longer term ramifications. We don't really know the answer. And you can see different commentators on the left kind of trying to figure out or like flirting with ideas that a few years ago, I think they would have been really uncomfortable with. And part of it is this moment. It feels like extreme extremities, like throwing anything, the spaghetti against the wall is helpful in a way that we could wind up feeling really regretful about. Well, we've already, Democrats have already learned this lesson. I mean, they know that you can you can criticize the defense budget, but you don't attack the troops, you know, or you don't attack the idea that we should have a defense budget or defense treaties. And I think this is a version of that. It's not quite it's not the quite the same trigger, but it's just it makes things too easy for Republicans because it's too easy for Donald Trump to say what you don't want border enforcement, you want open borders. And, you know, I think some of the some of the uh, people on the left saying this do want open borders, though, not really the elected representatives. Right. That's more like, you know, people lefties as opposed to like people in Congress. But it lets the right associate what's really a a fringe marginal position with the mainstream of the party that doesn't hold it. And for that reason, I think it's a it's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, it is telling that the focus, which for a week, a good strong week was really on family separation, the detention of families, the the, you know, the just grotesque, wicked enforcement of policy, the refusal of to accept asylum seekers, uh, all of the things, all of the truly horrible crimes that are being committed in our name on the border is now that it's it's been diffused. So there's some still some discussion of that. But there's all this. There's the abolish ice part of it. There's Trump's response to abolish ice. It, do, it doesn't feel like the Democrats have a cogent message about this and that they have lost the clear both moral and policy advantage they had when they were talking about the really wicked things that were going on and which are the things that need to be stopped. I, I agree with you. That's that's exactly right. If you were going to have a slogan that was to abolish some federal agency, what would that agency be? Or would you neither of you be willing well, to Well, Jacob is against anything? the whole Jacob would abolish nothing. He's got a... <laughs> Jacob would be like, right? keep, every, keep the secretary, keep you know the Department of Commerce's uh, promotion of, of Wilbur Ross's investment interest department. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. Agencies, even even the crummy ones, contain stuff that's Keep the necessary. Department of Sugar subsidies. I mean, you know, the Department of Commerce does. You know, is the uh, the NOAA the and the census. The census. That, you know, I don't I don't believe in so much in all the businessy stuff it does, but it does a lot of other stuff, keeping statistics. Well, you can pick a, you can pick a small agency. You can pick you can pick the Department of Sugar subsidies. Just to drive you crazy, David, I'm going to say NASA. NASA. I don't really that's think a, that, but. 
Come on. I Abolish feel like that's going to get gonna a rise out slogan? of you. No, it's really <laughs> not. But I thought that would really get to you. And now you're just chuckling. I'm sure there's some part of the Department of Transportation I would be glad to get rid of. There must be a de- Department of Transportation, you know, Office of Asphalt Maintenance. <laughs> Asphalt maintenance is important. What you want more car crashes? Oh, you think that should be a federal a federal program? I know that's to maintain a good question. Asphalt? I don't know. I really think the Department of Homeland Security is like the most questionable part in the way it's constructed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It is uh, having just come back in the country after no overseas visit. It is really shocking to come back in the country and how difficult it is to get back into your own country when you're a citizen. Imagine yeah, if you're, you're a, a citizen. Imagine yeah. if you're a visitor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, all right, open borders. Open border borders is the Weisberg policy. Um, <laughs> no, it is not. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On the record, it is not Jacob's policy. Scott Pruitt, who must have set some kind of Guinness Book of World Records for ethics investigations, is out as EPA administrator. Pruitt, who was subject to at least a dozen, possibly as many as 18 separate investigations of his chiseling, cheating, and chicanery, his grotesque corruption, his misuse of public funds, his misappropriation of employee time, his nepotism, he is finally gone. So we actually taped a segment on Thursday morning, Emily, Jacob, and I, all about Pruitt, but with the assumption that Pruitt was continuing to be EPA administrator, then he left. And so Emily and I have come back this afternoon to quickly grapple with the news that Pruitt is gone. Emily is on a subway as we tape this, so please excuse any audio quality issues and, uh, and please excuse the absence of Jacob, who, who was not able to join us for this. Emily, are you surprised that Scott Pruitt finally, uh, finally, finally, finally left? Is this, a, is this a vindication for journalism or is it just a sign of how incredibly low our standards are since he should have been gone months ago? I, it's both, right? I mean, it turns out he's not invincible. All the negative stories did finally uh, topple him, but it's just amazing how long it took, and I still don't really understand it. What do you think? Yes, I agree with that. And I think he had become, he was no longer that useful because Andrew Wheeler, his deputy, has all the same uh, good qualities as far as conservatives are concerned or bad qualities as far as liberals are concerned and will be just as effective at carrying out the the policy that Pruitt was, but he doesn't, as far as we know, Wheeler is not a chiseler and and uh, a cheat in the way Pruitt is. So why? He, he was no longer necessary. Right. So it turned out he finally was expendable and like the natural laws of politics have not been suspended forever. But what do you think the implications of how long he lasted are? Like, does this continue to be, is this a political problem for Trump in 2020? I mean, does this all just sort of wash away? I think that the overwhelming corruption in his cabinet and his administration will be a problem. So it's obviously not simply Pruitt. Pruitt was the most uh, histrionic example of of a chiseler and a cheat in the cabinet. But there are others. Wilbur Ross is currently engaged in the largest act of political insider 
trading, probably the largest political corruption in history, in the history of a cabinet member. And so you have Ross, you have DeVos, there's some shady stuff. Ben Carson, there's shady stuff. Everywhere you look in this administration, there is swampiness. And I think Democrats will probably be able to run against it, even with Pruitt gone. Right. I feel like that has to be right, that the, the sort of general swampiness stays alive even without him. It is a relief that he's gone, though, right? I don't know. I mean, Andrew Wheeler, who succeeded him, is, uh, you know, was a huge lobbyist for coal and gas, I think, and oil companies. So so it's very much a Fox uh, in charge of Henhouse situation still. Wheeler is, Wheeler is very much in the same uh, school of Pruitt. And uh, I don't think we're going to see in, in policy terms, I don't think the EPA is going to be a, a better place. Right. You, but, but I guess, but I suppose, yes, yes, it's good, it's good that the that the manifestly corrupt person has finally been driven from office and presumably will right, not be able to go back to your low bar. Yeah. What of all the kind of t- bits of, of corruption that Pruitt was implicated in from the Chick-fil-A franchise he tried to get for his wife to my favorite recent one, the putting of personal expenses on his junior staffers credit cards and then not paying them back. Do you think there's any one that broke the camel's back? Do you think there's any one that made Trump say, like, you know what? This is a bridge too far. You can have you can have three point five million dollars in security, but you can't have those commemorative pens. I kind of think the straw that broke the camel's back. The thing people remember is trying to get a job for his wife, just the shakedown, and then making the people who work for him buy him coffee. I mean, that's just nobody's supposed to be doing that. What's the most memorable to you? I think it was the um, enlisting a security staff to go around to go to hotels to get lotion, the special brand yeah, of Ritz Carlton right. lotion. That was a that was a doozy. I mean, the worst, the one that I felt worst about, the the one that was worst for the public was spending wasting all this money on security. So that's the worst for the public. Yeah. But the one that the one that reflected the lowness of character was the making his aides put things on their personal credit cards and not paying them back. I mean, that it's just so incredibly yeah. petty. And the mattress. I found getting the mattress from the Trump hotel sort of pathetic and cute more than I found that uh, damaging. That that was just that was just weird and pathological. It was but it, it didn't hurt anybody in the same way those other ones hurt people. OK, true enough. I like how we're parsing this. All right, Emily, you're on a subway, and uh, it's it's very hard to have this conversation with the glee and length we'd like to, so we're going to cut it off here. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are sitting overlooking a super fun site near you, watching the sunset, having a post-Pruitt cocktail, Jacob Weisberg, what are you going to be chattering about? David, I was just going to mention a magazine article I loved, which was by Jack Hitt in the, a recent issue of the New York Times magazine. 
um, which was a fantastic yarn about this renegade James Joyce scholar. And this was a guy who became a huge enfant terrible in, in the literary world um, because he said basically the big edition that was published of Ulysses with, that was supposed to correct all the mistakes was filled with all these mistakes. And he wrote this devastating article, I think, in the New York Review of Books or something. And he got an academic appointment out of it. And this guy was like the, the star of Joyce studies. And then he went missing. Like he went off the map. Well, and first then, he failed to write his own like complete definitive Ulysses. Right. right? He never he was published fix it for us. He was going to work on the definitive critical edition, which he it disappeared with him. Right. And Jack Hitt, the writer of this piece, found him down in Brazil and has it's a great. I won't I won't spoil it's it with all the deals. It's a great yarn. But it's a it's a it's a fantastic story. It's sort of what magazine long form magazine writing is all about. Emily, what is your chatter? I am a big fan of the fiction podcast The New Yorker puts out. So this is the one that Deborah Treisman, who's a fiction editor, does where she asks a different writer every month to pick a story that The New Yorker published by another writer. And so Deborah Treisman has a conversation with the invited writer. They kind of start, they introduce the story, then the invited writer reads the story um, with more or less skill, but plenty of skill in my view. And then they talk about it at the end. And I don't always make it through the story. Some stories are actually hard to list, like, or at least for me, hard to follow um, the audio of. But when I get into it, I love this podcast. And recently, the writer A.M. Holmes read a Margaret Atwood story called Stone Mattress. That as Holmes is reading the story, it came back to me so vividly. It's from 2011. I know that I read it at the time. And it's One of these stories that was written in a slightly different moment, but resonates so much with this Me Too, you know, Trumpian moment we're having. It resonates with um, the show The Handmaid's Tale, which I think I already brought up embarrassingly. But anyway, it's just really it was a great story. And the conversation that Treisman and Holmes have about it is terrific. So it's the June episode of the fiction podcast for The New Yorker. That is a great podcast. I love catching up on those on long drives. And exactly. The, it's all about what people pick. The pair of the, the choices are so interesting. For right. New writers. I completely agree. And you can always go back to old like it doesn't. Right. It's not something that's perishable. My chatter. Two, two quick things. First of all, I'm reading Bad Blood, the John Carreyou. I think that's how you say his name. Book about the Theranos long con. It's a bestseller Many of you have probably already read it. If you haven't read it, it's wonderful. It is a absolutely delightful book about some con artists and how they got away with a with an exceptional con for many many years. And it's uh, it's great. It's a deep inside portrait of this of the Silicon Valley darling and how it was completely corrupt from the start. It's and can we book. just like give all of our at least I feel like I have so much respect for John Kerry. I mean Elizabeth Holmes the founder and erstwhile CEO of Theranos was getting just such amazing media coverage and Carrie was skeptical and he took her down and it was not easy. They, you know, Theranos went after him. It just isn't a real story of like basic, incredibly diligent journalism. And, you know, he yeah. just gets so much credit for and that. And a grifter brought to justice. Yes, precisely. It and, does happen. And actually his and his employer, Rupert Murdoch, had a huge investment in Theranos, huh. and and yet Carrie went forward, and and Murdoch let the 
peace go forward. Yes. So that was also brave. Anyway, the book is just fantastic. I, I was up till all hours last night reading and haven't quite finished it yet. And then my second recommendation is the opposite. I, so I watch a lot of television and there's a bit of trash TV that probably none of you and maybe none of our listeners have watched. But if you are looking for a Sex in the City, um, a, 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 a suitable heir to Sex in the City, there's a show called The Bold Type, which is a, a show about three young women who work at a magazine, which is basically Cosmo and edited by basically Joanna Cole, who I think <laughs> is an executive producer on the show. It's unbelievably trashy. And yet, I because I have a teenage daughter and she loves it, so I watch it with her. It is such a pleasure to watch. It is, it's just very, very funny about journalism and about magazines. And then it's about the mores of young women. I, I love it. The bold type. It's on some some cable network that I shouldn't even be allowed to watch <laughs> because I'm an old guy. <laughs> Checking right. your ID uh, at the door. Like that is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by the estimable Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is the bearded Izzy Road. I'm no longer bearded, so Izzy has the only beard in the joint. Oh, it's true. I didn't even notice. I just got very frustrated yesterday. I was really it's so hot. Been so hot. Yeah. I just like ah. I just, scraped it all off but i'll probably just grow it back now because i now i feel like a naked mole rat you can follow us on twitter at at slate gab fest for emily bazelon and jacob weisberg who is always such a good guest thank you david, david plotz Pleasure come back anytime you. jacob thank you and please come to our live show in philadelphia on july 18th get tickets at slate.com slash live and now gambling terms snake eyes Rolling ones with a pair of dice. Double down. Doubling the original bet for one more card. Bad beat. When your strong hand gets beat. Illegal gambling can put you at risk. Protect our communities. Play legit and gamble only where it's legal. Learn more now at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.